It's a great privilege to be with you today and to open God's Word with you. And uh, now that Christmas and New Year's is over, a lot of people are thinking about getting in shape. Going on a diet, eating less, exercising more. Some of us wish we had done a few more pushaways from the table. Big season for exercise equipment, by the way. And um, the body does not stay in shape by itself, does it? And some people in their quest for, for uh, conditioning, they'll even hire a personal trainer. Now those in team sports, they have the, the, the privilege, the gift, the benefit of a coach. But what trainers and coaches do basically is they, they intentionally hurt you. They create pain so that you will grow, so that you will build endurance and strength. And it's kind of like what God does with us spiritually. Not to harm us, but to cause us to grow, to cause us to progress. God stretches all our comfort zones so that we might grow. Unless tested, our faith won't mature. Unless it's challenged, courage won't develop. When all's rosy, we don't grow. You understand that? And you won't be shocked and angry when tough times come in your life. See, your coach, if he sees you mid-season when you should be training, chomping on a donut, just hanging out, he's going to snatch that donut out of your hand. That's his job. Now, let me ask you a question. Are you crying today because God took away your pastry? That's his job. Open your Bibles, please, uh, to Hebrews chapter 12. And stand with me for God's word. We're going to read three verses today. And what we're doing today is heading into the final two chapters of Hebrews. This letter was written by an anonymous author, known only to God at this point, to a diverse, multi-ethnic group of people who lived in an urban environment at all different levels of spirituality, much like the church of today. Some of them professed to know Christ, but did not. Others truly knew him, but were wavering. And true believers were marginalized because of their faith, suffering at the hands of those who did not share their convictions. They were tempted to call it quits on their relationship with God and go back to legalistic, empty religion. And they struggled with the question that is common to all of us. If God cares about us so much, if God is so interested in us, why are we suffering? Well, let's read Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. And we pray, Lord, that you'd speak to our hearts this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
And please be seated. Life's a journey, a journey with ups and downs. It goes from weakness to rest and alienation to acceptance, from weakness to strength. And the way to make it in the journey is to fix our eyes on Jesus, our coach, our trainer, the one who makes us hurt for our good and for his glory. Now, in the New Testament times, uh, Greek and Roman athletic competitions gave a, a common analogy for the Christian life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we read this, that all run, but only one receives the prize. And so we're to run in such a way that we can win. 2 Timothy chapter 2 tells us that athletes who compete only receive the prize if they compete according to the rules. And in a similar fashion, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, pictures the Christian life as running a race with Jesus at its focus and goal. And in this, in this really short passage, we see the context and the calling and the captain of faith. First, let's look at the context. The context is simple and it's easy to see here. It's examples of faith. That we have some amazing examples of faith. People who endured, people who persevered. Verse 1 begins, therefore. Because of all that's been said already in Hebrews chapter 11, and really, uh, what this does, this therefore, doesn't just point back to chapter 11, it also goes all the way back and sums up the argument that was started in chapter 8, verse 6, about the better promises in Christ. It says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, what we see here is that others have finished the race with honors already. Their example encourages us, it gives us ample proof that the life of faith is best. Now, the picture of a cloud is very interesting. The picture of a cloud as uh, describing a large group of people was a common figure of speech, both in, in literature and in language in those days. And it expressed not only the sheer number of people that were in the crowd, but also that they were in agreement in what they were saying. There's a lot of them, and they agree as to their witness. They're in heaven. All the people listed in Hebrews 11, Abel and Enoch and, and Abraham and Sarah and Moses and the rest, people of faith, people who trusted God. But what's the significance of having them as a, a cloud of witnesses? Now today uh, is the fourth annual Orange County Marathon. They were anticipating over 13,000 runners today. And over 20,000 spectators just watching the race. I'm sure with the rain, that went down a bit. But when you think of this verse, many people have seen this verse as speaking of the witnesses as watching us. Like spectators, observing us, examining us. I don't think that's the case. See, the cloud of witnesses are a, a source of inspiration. They're a source of encouragement. Uh, they're examples to spur us on. But the picture is not of them examining us as, as spectators, just watching us. 
the picture is of us watching them. Of us watching them uh, for encouragement. They're dead, but they still speak. They speak louder than the audible voice because their lives, as recorded in Scripture, speak loudly to us. So they witness to us. Uh, They bear witness to the worth of knowing God. They bear witness to the worth of the life of faith, the only way to please God. So the context here provides us with some assurance that there are many who have gone before us and they're in agreement with what they say to us. Now there's also the calling of the life of faith. It involves movement. Movement. What we have in in these verses is an encouragement to faithful preparation and endurance in the race of faith. Notice verse 1. Therefore, let us also lay aside. Uh, Notice the word also. Just like the cloud of witnesses, just like they did, they were enabled to, to lay some things aside. We're also being encouraged to do the same. It says, lay aside means to get rid of. It doesn't mean to put aside till later. Okay? When I was in high school, I, I was running once, and, and, and I took off my cross-country sweatshirt, and I, I laid it on a fence post and said, I will get this when I come back later. Well, it wasn't there when I came back later. Uh, it cost me 30 bucks, too, back in 1978. Uh, it was an expensive proposition. But the thing is, to lay aside doesn't mean you're going to lay it there and pick it up later when, you're, when you want. It means you get rid of it. So we're supposed to lay some things aside. There's some movement, and it's movement uh, away from sin. That's, that's our first training instruction uh, in the race of faith. Let us lay aside, uh, lay aside encumbrances is the first word we see. An encumbrance. In biblical times, an athlete would, uh, would vigorously train, just like nowadays, would vigorously train to, to remove excess flesh and weight from their body over a period of time so that they could run, run faster. But they would also do something else. They would take off all their clothes and run. They were the first streakers. For those of you that were around in the 70s, they were streakers. They would, get out, they would run with no clothes on. Why? Because they wore big, long robes. They were getting in the way. They would trip. So we're to lay aside every encumbrance. And encumbrances are the things that drag us down. Encumbrances are the things that slow down our progress in Christ. Extra weight, things we carry, burdens we bear that we were not designed to bear. Like fear, causing us to shrink back in the face of suffering as chapter 10 verses 38 and 39 told us. Basic idea is if it doesn't help you, it hinders you. Now in addition to getting rid of some extra weight, we're to avoid entanglements. Entanglements. Uh, picture walking through a, a hallway and not seeing a spider web and, and getting all caught up in the spider web and then having to do the dance that no one else knows why you're dancing because they don't see the spider web. Uh, entanglements. Uh, it, for Christians, it's outright sin. Stumbling blocks. Uh, we're to obtain, abstain from fleshly lusts, which 1 Peter 2.11 says, wage war against our souls. We're in a battle. It's not fun and games. And, and sin easily entangles us. Why? 
because it's so easy to choose. Sin by its very nature is deceptive. Subtle trap. And we need to be, therefore, wise and and wary and, and discerning the choices we make. And when it comes to sin, those who claim to know Jesus are to admit their sin to God, to confess their sins, and to to turn from them, to repent and go the other direction, and not to continue in their sin. But often what happens is we're really willing to negotiate with sin. Leads to things like like bitterness that defile many, which we see right here in this context in in verse 15, chapter 12. Leads to things like self-centeredness, which is seen in verse 16 in in the example of Esau where we seek immediate gratification of our desires. Again, if it doesn't help you, it hinders you. Now, this passage of Scripture is primarily addressed to Christians, those who are in the race, those who are of faith. And if you're not a Christian, you're not in the race. You're, you're a spectator. You're, you're watching. And the sin that you need to lay aside is the sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief that is keeping you from believing in Jesus. See, as God enables you, you're, you're to turn from your sin and turn to Him. Turn to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Jesus loves you. He doesn't condemn you. The only sin that's going to condemn you is the sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief is going to condemn you and Jesus took that condemnation, took it all upon himself on the cross so that we might live. So if you're a spectator today, you could get in the race right now, right this very moment, by saying, I believe. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and and was buried and rose from the dead. And in that victory over sin, when he took my punishment, he did what I could never do, save myself. And if you come to the end of yourself, then you can just say, Lord Jesus, I'm throwing myself at your mercy. If it doesn't help you, it hinders you. Now the other aspect of the calling involves movement, but not away from something bad for you, towards something good for you. It's movement towards God. We're to, as as verse 1 says, run with endurance the race set before us. Run with endurance, uh, persevere, uh, be determined to stick with it, don't give up, don't quit. Now the Greek word for race is agon, it's where we get our word agony. I remember as a kid, uh, almost every Saturday, loving to watch the the wide world of sports on on TV. And um, I loved the, the, the intro, that was like the best part of the show. The intro show these great sports clips, you know, these highlights, and all. then you hear the, the, the line, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Well, for a Christian, it's the thrill of victory and the agony of everyday life. Life is hard, and it includes pain and lots of it. We'd love life to be comfortable. We'd love life to be painless. That's not the way, that's not the way it is. This is not the truth. Life is a race. Suffering is part of the picture. And endurance requires a high threshold for pain. 
Life becomes vivid and clear, not in moments of ease, but when, when times are tough. In the midst of the journey of faith. When we face death and major illness and job loss and rebellion or betrayal. George MacDonald said that every difficulty points to something more than our theory of life embraces. Every difficulty points to something more than our theory of life embraces. You see, what happens when we face difficulty is we often find that our theory of life is functionally inadequate to deal with the realities of life. So we need to readjust and get realigned with Scripture and with truth. Like a runner, we're to be in constant motion towards the goal in spite of all the opposition that might come our way or be right in front of us. So why do believers, why do Christians not endure? I mean, there's a lot, of, a lot of people who say, hey, I'm a believer in Jesus, but they're on the sidelines, they're spectators, they're not in the race. Why is that? I think the biggest reason that believers don't endure is a lack of self-discipline. I mean, can you picture an elite athlete sitting in front of the TV day after day, popping C's candy into their mouth, watching TV, eating as many sodas as they can, all you can eat pizza? No. You know, remember, uh, Lance Armstrong, seven-time winner of the Tour de France, he would, would weigh out every ounce of food that he put into his body. And the workouts... Unbelievable. Self-control. The same is true spiritually. In fact, go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 in the context of a race, context of running. Everybody who's in a race, they all run, but only one can get the prize. None of that trophy for everybody stuff. That's just wrong. Here is what, here's what verse 25 says. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body. And literally I pummel my body and make it my slave and so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. A lack of self-discipline points to the need for Holy Spirit-provided self-control. It's not a one-time occurrence. It's a series of smaller, less dramatic choices on a daily basis. I mean, take diets, for example. Some of you are on diets. Which is easier, a fad or a lifestyle change? It's much easier to take a pill than to walk an hour a day. Most people choose the quick fix. But there's no shortcuts to getting in physical shape and there's no shortcuts to getting into spiritual shape. There's not 10 easy steps. First Timothy 4, 7 and 8 say, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Bodily discipline is of only little profit. It's, it's profitable but only a little. Why? Because godliness is profitable for all things. It holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. See, bodily exercise holds you some promise here now for the present life. Godliness holds promise for the life to come. 
We're talking about endurance. We're talking about not giving up in the midst of the race. And it's important to remember when we're talking about endurance or perseverance, it doesn't mean perfection. It do, it, it, what it means is we don't throw in the towel when we find we're not yet mature and when there's a long way to go in the race still ahead of us. We keep going. See, it said, the verse says we're to run with endurance the race that's marked out for us. The race that is set before us. For every Christian, the, the final destination is the same, but God has different courses marked out for each one of his children. I was a competitive long-distance runner. I emphasize was. Um, as a runner, I ran a lot of races. I remember back to 1976 in high school, freshman in high school, ran in Mount Sac, a huge, grueling uh, cross-country course with a lot of hills. I uh, ran a lot of 10Ks, you know, in, in, in Downey, where I grew up, and in Irvine. Um, I even ran a 24-hour relay race once, 24 miles in 24 hours. But I never ran a marathon. Never wanted to. Could have, but didn't want to. Just couldn't get into it. Sorry, sorry marathoners. I just couldn't, couldn't bear the thought of going that many miles in a row and just doing that the whole time. So didn't do it. Um, last race I ran was in, 19, it was in 2000. It's been a while. So I say I was a, a distance runner. I am now a, a long distance walker. <laughs> Seriously. Um, but... I found two, there's two keys to running well. They're simple. The first is, uh, is commitment. Commitment. It takes a commitment to working out all the time. And um, spiritually, that translates into several things. Um, the Word of God. Reading the Word of God daily. Letting God, through His Word, uh, examine what baggage we're to leave behind. Romans 10 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. And in 2 Timothy 2.15, we're instructed to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, rightfully dividing the word of truth. Uh, commitment means uh, a commitment to prayer, to, to speaking with God, to, to, to listening to Him, to confessing our sins, to repenting of our sins. It means consistently sharing our faith in Christ, giving the hope that we have in Jesus to others. Letting them know what is the hope that we live by. So commitment is one thing, and there's a lot that goes with that, obviously. A lot of internals and, and that, that come out in externals, too. But the second thing is, is community. Now, I ran a lot of miles alone. I used to love to run alone. I walk alone most of the time. Actually, I take my sermon notes with me. Try not to hit poles, um, which I've done before. Uh, but I... I when I, when I would run with other people, I would do better. I would keep going. Uh, they would spur me on to, to continue, especially if you're in the middle of a race and you're, you're running with someone who is challenging you and you want to either pass them or stay with them and then, and then beat them with a kick at the end or whatever, you know. Um, but community, basically a commitment to regular fellowship with other believers, uh, being often with people you know and who know you. And that together you can um, love one another and, and care for one another and hold one another accountable in your life in Christ. Uh, I ran cross country and track in high school. And 
contrary to, to popular opinion, those are not individual sports. Those are team sports. Yes, you can get individual glory and what have you, but they are team sports. In cross country, you could have the number one runner in the state. And if your other five runners are, you know, dogging it and they're in the back, you will not win a, a league championship, much, le- much less an individual meet, because you've got to all be bunched together. And the closer your, the weakest runner is to the front, the better your team's going to do. Only as strong as the weakest link. The Christian life is not an individual pursuit. It's a team sport. That, that cuts across the grain of, of, of our American mindset. But it is a team sport. We are to live in community with each other. And, and while we do that, there's really two kinds of people we need in our lives. The first are mentors. People who have gone down the road farther than us and who are willing to turn around Look towards us and help us come up the road. We need mentors. And we also need friends. Friends that will walk side by side with us or run side by side with us or, and even uh, pick us up when we fall down or, or carry us if need be. Mentors and friends. This passage points to the fact that the Christian life, the race of faith, is to be done in community. Look at, look at verse 1 again. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that, that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. The, the, the author doesn't say I or me. He says we and us. So when we're discouraged, when we're downhearted, when we're exhausted, when life seems hopeless, when we feel so inadequate, that's when the real worth of community kicks in. When mentors and friends are there to help us. No man is an island. We need each other. Now there's another aspect to the life of faith. It's faith's race that we see in these verses. And nothing is possible without this. To endure in the life of faith, in the race, we can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We can't do it on our own. We can't be the captain of our own souls. We must rely upon the primary, the primary example of faith in the race. The true captain. Look at verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. That is the key to the Christian life, right there. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. What does that mean? What does that mean? It literally means to look away from one thing to another. To look away from one thing and to concentrate on another. It means uh, directing the attention of our hearts to Jesus. By faith, directing the attentions of our hearts on Jesus. It means believing. See, the cool thing is when we look at God, when we're focused on Jesus, 
we don't see ourselves. We don't see the other distractions. When I was running track as a high school student, as a freshman, uh, my, my race became the 880, two times around. It's now the 800. But I had this very annoying habit that drove my coach crazy. And he kept telling me, he says, why do you do this all the time? Do you realize you would run faster if you didn't do this? Well, here's what I would do. And I would be in, in, in first place in the race. And like I'd be coming to the last 200 yards. And I'd be in first place, and here's what I would be doing. I'd be turning around, looking at the people coming behind me. Sometimes, five times in a race. My coach would say, you just turn around five times. That was two seconds. You lost two seconds in the race. Now, I won the race, but I went slower than I could have because I was distracted by the thought of the runners behind me that were way, 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 way behind me, by the way. (laughs) They were in the dust. But it hindered my progress. It hindered. In the race of faith, our primary encouragement is not what other people have done, not what other people are doing, but what Jesus has done and what Jesus wants to do in us and through us for his glory. We're to fix our hope not on the, not on the heroes of faith, but on faith's hero, on Jesus. He is the source of faith. He is, he is called here the author of faith, the originator, the founder, the pioneer, the leader, the starter, the initiator. It starts with him. He initiates it. He inspires it. He supplies it. He has given us faith. Anyone who has true faith received it as a gift from God. Jesus is called the author of our faith. He's the source of our faith. He's also called the the perfecter of faith. He's the sustainer of faith. The the finisher, the completer. The one who, who brings us through to the goal so that we might win the prize. So we fix our eyes on Jesus as, as verse 2 says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. What was the joy set before Jesus? It surely was not the cross. That was agony. That was his race. His agon. It, that was the cross. So what was the joy? The joy was us. Us. Our salvation. That was the joy set before Jesus. The cross, it was encumbering, it was weighty. God put all our sin upon him so that we might live. And have eternal life. And what did he do? He despised the shame of the cross, we read. He sat down at the right hand of God. He took his seat of authority when his work was finished in buying salvation for all who would believe. And so verse 3 says that we're, we're to consider him. We're to think deeply of Jesus who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that we don't lose heart, so that we don't quit, so that we don't throw in the towel in the race of faith. I, uh, I, I think about Peter. When he was in the boat, and he sees Jesus in the middle of the night walking on in water. It happened. 
And, uh, and, and Peter says, hey, Jesus, if it's you, let me walk out there with you. Jesus says, come on, let's go. So he starts to walk. And Peter is walking on water. But all of a sudden, he turns and sees the wind and the waves, and he's distracted. He's no longer looking at Jesus, and he sinks. What does Jesus do? He, he reaches out and, and, and takes hold of him and brings him in. See, when we focus on Jesus, he focuses the rest of our life. The rest of life comes in focus. For about a year now, I've, uh, I've had an issue that I have not wanted to admit. I'm, I'm having eyesight issues. It was a source of pride for me in my life. 2020, all the time. I'm 45 now, and I'm telling you, you're a little fuzzy right now. Um, when I look at my notes and I look at you, you're a little fuzzy. And then when I look down, that's fuzzy too. When I get the glasses, when, if, um, things will become more focused. See, Jesus focuses our life. Uh, endurance. One of the greatest stories of endurance happened in 1914. Actually, it began in 1914. On the day the First World War broke out in Europe, English explorer Sir Ernest Shackleton uh, sailed south with a crew of 27 men. They were bound for Antarctica. They were, their goal was to be the first team to cross the continent on foot. They were one day from the, from the, the continent and their, their ship, which was actually called the Endurance, it got stuck in the ice, couldn't move. So uh, their mission was a failure. It was gone. It was the, the original intent, done. But it began a 20-month ordeal where those 28 men struggled to stay alive in the world's worst climates. They had no means of communication to the outside world and no hope that anyone would come and rescue them. What'd they do? Well, first of all, they couldn't do anything with the ship because the ship sank. <laughs> so there they are uh, on a big old hunk of ice. So they camped on the packed ice for four months. Then it started to break up and they rowed their lifeboats 150 miles to a little patch of rock called Elephant Island. And they, they stayed there. They waited until the spring of 1916. And then... Uh, Shackleton and four of his crew members uh, got a, a 22-foot uh, lifeboat. They rigged that up and made it into a sailboat, and they navigated 800 miles of the world's most treacherous oceans. And they came to South Georgia Island. And they got out of the boat, and they hit land, and they, they hiked for 36 consecutive hours across some of the most treacherous terrain in the world until they came to a whaling station. And... Uh, when they got there, Shackleton borrowed a boat and went back to get his men. And so, he retrieved them four months after he had left Elephant Island. And all 27 were saved. No one died. They all survived. They never gave up hope. But more importantly, their captain never gave up hope on them. See, the reason we can keep running and not quit is simple. God never gives up on us. God never gives up on us. 
Eugene Peterson put it this way. He established a personal relationship with us that stays and stays with it. The central reality for us is the personal, unalterable, persevering commitment God makes to us. Endurance is not the result of our determination. It's the result of God's faithfulness. We survive in the way of faith not because we have extraordinary stamina, but because God is righteous. Because God sticks with us. That's the only reason we can do what Philippians 3 says. Forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead. Press on towards the goal for the, for the high call of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus.